Support for NHPR's New Hampshire News Recap comes from you, our listeners, and from Bank of New Hampshire, whose mission is building brighter futures for customers, employees, and communities, supporting impactful organizations that enhance the health and vitality of the communities in which we live, work, and play, playing an integral part in New Hampshire's growth since 1831. 21 locations and online at bankNH.com. Member FDIC. It's Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Hanley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. We're getting into this week's top headlines. Lawmakers are looking to finalize a number of bills as we head into the end of this legislative session. That includes measures on redistricting, masks in schools, and an effort to establish a parental bill of rights in schools. Joining us now to talk about that and more are NHPR reporters Josh Rogers and Sarah Gibson. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Rick. Good morning. So let's start with uh, lawmakers going back and forth this week on a bill that would establish a parental bill of rights in New Hampshire schools. That bill would expand parents' access to information about child's curriculum, school activities, and more. Sarah, can you tell us more about what else this bill might do? Uh, it would do a lot of things. I would kind of break it up into two sections. So so one is it kind of collates existing law in New Hampshire related to basically parents' rights relative to public schools. So there are things on the books, but they're kind of scattered throughout New Hampshire law, things like parents having a right to access school records of their kids, a right to potentially object to materials in health and sex education classes, that kind of thing. But then this bill also really expands parental rights um, and the kind of notion of what parents can direct versus what schools can direct. So there are some really broad, there's some really broad language, such as uh, you know parents have the right to direct the education and care of their child, or the right to direct the upbringing and the moral or religious training of their child. And you know on the books that probably uh, makes sense to to most parents, but it does potentially expose. Uh, Uh, teachers and schools to litigation, because basically you can kind of say, well, the conversations in school about, say, transgender identity or uh, racism or white supremacy, those are in conflict with kind of my value system or the upbringing that I'm trying to that I'm aiming for. And in fact, uh, that could lead to substantial litigation against schools. That, that's kind of the fear with this bill. Yeah, and, and critics of the bill are saying that this this would pretty much out some LGBTQ students to their parents. Can you talk more about that aspect of it? Sure. So uh, the, again, the language is a little hard to parse, but essentially in practice, the concern is that uh, a lot, m- most schools uh, are either are in the process of developing or already have anti-discrimination policies, which include uh, language to essentially protect LGBTQ students. And so if, say, a student goes into uh, their classroom and says, uh, I'm actually using they pronouns, or I've changed my name, or I'm, I'm having questions about my uh sexuality and my identity, it's possible that if there's any kind of policy relating to uh, welcoming and including students uh, with LGBTQ plus identities, that parent that parents would have to be in, essentially informed of those conversations, of those requests. Of the and that could set up conflicts, obviously, with anti-discrimination laws. Yeah, exactly. In part because, you know, some students who um, are LGBTQ plus maybe are out uh, at school or out in certain classes, but aren't out at their um, in their home environment, in part because of, of concerns that they would not be welcomed um, or 
you know, in their in their home environment. Right. Now, many thought that this bill was done earlier this week. Republican members of the House and Senate have failed to agree on details, but it, it did come back and we, we heard more debate yesterday. Josh, you were there at the State House. How did supporters revive that bill? Well, there were, you know, in several ways, I guess. I mean, there was a big push from uh, activists, conservatives, uh, Rebuild New Hampshire, the, the COVID-inspired um, uh, activist group, uh, urged uh, supporters to contact Speaker Sherman Packard, to contact Speaker Pro Tem Kim Rice, who was uh, the lead House negotiator on this bill, at least initially, and, and was most concerned about uh, some of the implications of the policies Sarah mentioned, and was certainly concerned about uh, the Attorney General's office opposition to this bill. And her bottom line was essentially, you know, th- we've got too many issues with this bill to fix this year. Let's kill this now. We can revisit this with more time and more people at the table. Uh, that was not a popular stance among activists, uh, not a popular stance among apparently a decent slug of the Republican caucus in the House, and uh, not a popular stance with House Speaker Packard. So, you know, what happened, and this is this is a speaker's prerogative, is that Packard dissolved and reconstituted the House's negotiating team. He put himself and House Majority Leader Jason Osborne at the table and they reached agreement with the Senate. And, you know, the Senate, uh, Republicans in the Senate at least, very much wanted to pass this. Uh, Kind of in the backdrop of this is President Chuck Morse. Uh, He was on the scene during negotiations. Um, He's featured parental rights as part of his uh, nascent U.S. Senate campaign. So there's that. But, you know, there's also really the fact that many Republicans like this policy. And even if they're not terribly... uh, expert in the nuances of the policy that Sarah was describing. They like the concept yeah. and the broader spirit of this bill. So they essentially reset it. They really wanted to do it this session. Um, and the full House and Senate voting on the bill next week. And then it goes through that stage. It'll hit the governor's desk. The governor already saying yesterday that he has uh, he would veto it in its current form. Um, Sarah, what, what did he have to say? And where does the bill stand now? Well, I mean, he was basically saying exactly what you said, that in its current form, it raises concerns similar to what we heard over the course of the week. In fact, even from the attorney general's office. So the attorney general's office went to lawmakers and said, we have, um, you know, essentially warned them that some of the language in this bill could very much, uh, you know, put uh, us in violation of existing anti-discrimination laws that Mm -hmm. we have on the books. And so um, there was there was real caution from the attorney general's office, as well as caution from, um, you know, advocates for, for survivors of domestic violence, concerns about confidentia- confidentiality of students being um, being violated were this bill to pass in its current form. So he basically said, you know, there's enough concerns here that that I'm going to veto the bill. So again, we'll see we'll see what comes out of this uh, next week when it goes to the full floor vote for the House and Senate. I mean, they did, they did insert essentially what amounts to a severability clause, which would allow portions of the law to stand if it was enjoined or deemed unenforceable. But um, on the floor, when this gets to the floor, it's a committee of conference report and lawmakers have to vote it up or down. There's no time to amend it. So when the governor says it's current form, that was issued three hours before the negotiation period Mm. closed. So he's going to veto this bill if it it gets to him. And so this appears to be done. We'll see for now anyway. Um, But, you know, they'll bring it back in the next time around. It's Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with NHPR reporters Sarah Gibson and Josh Rogers. If you have questions, you can always 
let us know. Email us at voices at nhpr.org. I want to turn to another issue now. Lawmakers failing to reach agreement yesterday on a bill to replace the Sununu Youth Services Center. What is this bill proposing, Josh? Well, there were competing versions, uh, and you know what this impasse boiled down to was a dispute over numbers of beds and staffing. The Senate wanted the new facility to include 12 beds with a surge capacity to 18. The House version, they wanted six beds, and then the House was willing to bump that up to 12, but without flexibility to potentially um, house more uh, juveniles there. And, you know, the Sununu Center, uh, the current Sununu Center has a fluctuating census of, 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 uh, of minors going in and out, but it's rarely um, above the, the low teens. I mean, you know, this bill died, but this, the, 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 the will uh, to replace the Sununu Center is widespread at the State House. Governor Sununu wants to do it. Leaders of, of leaders, leading Democrats and Republicans want to do it. Uh, so this is, you know, all but certain to, to, to take place in the next state budget. So, mm-hmm. you know, stay tuned for the particulars there. Okay. And another bill, the legislature this session would establish a fund for victims of abuse while they were at that former Sununu Youth Services Center. If passed, uh, the state would make $100 million available to settle claims, but there's been pushback from attorneys representing more than 500 victims. Josh, can, can you tell me more about that? Well, the, the plaintiff's attorneys see several issues with this fund, that, that the fund doesn't contemplate awards for emotional abuse. They say the caps on awards for physical and, and sexual abuse uh, may be too low. And they also don't like that to uh, resolve uh, you know claims with this fund, uh, claimants would have to forfeit the right to pursue redress in the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lawyers say the approach, you know, their bottom line is this isn't sufficiently victim-centered and trauma-informed. You know, this 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 whole thing is really the uh, a proposal that John Formella, the attorney general, uh, came up with. And he says that this bill uh, aims to strike a balance and, and is stressing that victims can seek relief in courts, in the courts if they don't like, uh, if they don't want to pursue this alternative uh, way to resolve. So where does the, the bill point. stand now? Well, it's going to become law, and I guess we'll see who's right in terms of whether this is an attractive option for people who've been harmed by the state to settle right. to settle abuse claims. And the lawmakers have passed a bill that would ban mask mandates in schools. Now it needs the signature of the governor. It's moving to his desk. Sarah, if that is to become law, what would it mean for, for schools? So it would prevent school boards from setting mask mandates uh, in their school buildings. And that's essentially how, uh, you know, mask decisions were made during the course of most of the pandemic. It was up to it was local control. It was up to school boards to decide whether or not to enforce a mask mandate. And this prevents them from doing so. However, you know, it doesn't prevent towns from having indoor mask mandates. So there is a scenario where, you know, in the future, the next COVID-19, you know, pandemic type of thing we have or if just there's a huge surge and um, there's very there's major concerns about transmission if a town were to institute an in, uh, indoor mask mandate that would likely extend to the school building so it doesn't mean that there will never be never be a mask mandate um, in any town in New Hampshire school in any school in New Hampshire towns but it does um, prevent the school board and the administration from making that decision okay I mean are kids kids still wearing masks in schools in New Hampshire as there been uh, still widespread spread use of that? That's a great question. I think it really does depend on the school, but I've been in a couple different schools in the last few weeks and have have noticed actually that quite a few 
uh, at least teenagers, high schoolers, are continuing to wear masks, uh, and as are a number of staff. I mean, I think a lot of people have welcomed the option to not wear them. Um, you know, there's it's just in terms of socializing and also some developmental things. I think it's been nice to feel a, a little bit more normalcy in the in school buildings, but certainly um, a number of, of students and staff have continued to wear masks, maybe because of uh, someone with uh, concerns about c- getting COVID at home, who they want to protect, or right. just it, that's kind of become the norm for many of them. And has go- the governor expressed support for this particular mask mandate? You know, I, I, I'm not sure. Or not mandate, rather. I should say this. this. The, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, in the past, for for a while, he was saying it's up to it's up to school boards to make the final call on mask mandates. But he did, in fact, um, this past spring, um, you know, request that that schools no longer require the mask mandates. So it seems likely that this is going to go through. All right. Uh, I want to ask you both before we go, what's next for for your reporting, Sarah and Josh? What else you're working on right now? Any upcoming stories that listeners should be on the lookout for, Sarah? Uh, sure. So I uh, have been looking into behavioral issues in high schools. Uh, this has been something that's come up throughout the course of the year, this sense that even though we're um, trying to establish a quote unquote new normal, we're not really there yet. And so as a result, um, there's a, a, an uptick in mental health issues that we're seeing in high schools, as well as behavioral problems, um, which, are, which are very linked. Uh, so I, I'm looking at that and, and speaking to some staff and, and students throughout the state about how they're dealing with that. How about you, Josh? Well, I guess I've got an eye peeled to see what happens with redistricting. We didn't talk about that, but you know, the 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 um, if the if the legislature and the governor can't agree on a congressional map, um, you know, ASAP, uh, it's going to be resolved by the state supreme court. Uh, you know, there's also the filing period for candidates uh, that kicks off June 1st. There's going to be big turnover in the New Hampshire Senate. Uh, six incumbents so far, by my count, are either riding off into the sunset or seeking other office. So mm-hmm. there'll be some new folks in the state Senate. All right. We'll be watching for, for that, uh, for both of uh, your reporting. Thank you so much to NHPR's Josh Rogers and Sarah Gibson. You can find more of their work at NHPR.org. And we'll be here next Friday with more top headlines, as always. I'm Rick Ganley. This is Morning Edition on NHPR.